on ABC Radio. You're listening to Overnights. You are, and uh, Tim Webster for uh, for Rod Quinn. Let's head across to the United States, shall we, and uh, and find out what's going on there. And the answer that to that is a hell of a lot. Here's Celeste Katz Marston. Hi, Les Celeste. Hey, good morning. Good morning to you. Now, um, I watch this from my part of the world with absolute fascination. Americans are divided along party lines over Donald Trump in these election cases. They really, really are. And you get some numbers out there that say, in general, people disapprove of Donald Trump. In general, uh, they think that uh, he has done things that are uh, illegal or improper, things like that. But when you break it down by party lines, you really do have very strong sentiment among Democrats that those things are true. But when it comes to Republicans, they feel very differently, much more supportive of him. So this is all very interesting as we are uh, really starting to to ramp up in the uh, the next election. Yeah, but Celeste, gee, to me, that uh, finding votes phone call was very telling, wasn't it? Well, look, you would think, and we have a new case in this, uh, the latest numbers that we're talking about here actually uh, were were compiled and analyzed before Monday when yet another indictment, I believe the fourth indictment this year of the former president came out. And that was uh, specifically in the case of the state of Georgia and his his possible uh, attempts to to interfere with the uh, the outcome of the election there. So um yeah, look, I mean, there's definitely tons of evidence. A lot of these cases have been really scrupulously compiled, um, but there's a legal process and he's going to go through it like everyone else. <laughs> yeah. Well, if you take out the along party lines equation, I mean, overall, your polling numbers are saying that 35 percent of Americans have a favorable view, but 62 percent unfavorable. So, I mean, uh, the question I have to ask is, will the Republicans eventually figure out that he's not the right candidate? Well, that's uh, that's what we have elections for. And I you know, used to try to do a lot of the crystal ball stuff yeah. and I've really gotten away from it because, look, I mean, I, I covered the 2016 election, traveled around covering uh, Trump and, you know, so nobody thought at least early on in the process, very, very few people thought that he had any chance whatsoever of being elected. And lots of people and lots of newspapers and media outlets treated his entire candidacy as a joke. Yeah. And, uh, you know, look, everybody had egg on their faces after that. Somehow people were fascinated by him or they didn't like uh, Hillary Clinton or both, whatever it may be. But he was the president. And uh, here we are today. So the crystal ball stuff to me is uh, perilous, to say the <laughs> least. Well, one thing's for sure and certain, Celeste, he's a fascinating man. That's for sure. Yeah, been covering him for a very long time, uh, you know, being a, a New Yorker, um, you know, basically you couldn't get away from him. He was he was always around, always there. And uh, if you didn't call him, sometimes he'd call you. He was not a guy who did not enjoy being in the newspaper. Is that right? He'd call you. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes, you know, just the phone would ring and they would say, uh, Mr. Trump is on the line. And I was like, well, that's interesting because I didn't call him. <laughs> but uh, you know, sometimes he just wanted to uh, to drop some wisdom on you, I yeah. guess you could say. But uh, look, this is a guy who's certainly had a very, very long track record of dealing with the press and even not talking to you or disparaging one media outlet to another media outlet. You know, he had sort of a, a system going. And again, uh, you know, people have learned, I think, increasingly 
increasingly to take what he said either with a grain of salt or to categorize it as as questionable uh uh not true uh, in some cases, yeah. but uh, he still he still has a, a very outsized influence on American politics, uh, even under multiple indictments. He's still the by far the leading candidate in the Republican Party, at least. Yeah, he's a big personality and he doesn't back off, does he? Just refuses to. Yeah, he's really um, he's. I guess I guess he's he's very involved in his own brand and his own uh, sort of creating his own image with people. And look, there are a lot of people who like yeah. uh, what they think he stands for, uh, whether that is what he actually stands for. I mean, if you've been covering him for a long time, you know, those those two things may not be quite the same thing. <laughs> now, this one, uh, Celeste, absolutely fascinates me. North Korea making their first public comments about Travis King. Uh, that soldier uh, detained in North Korea. This is a really wild case, and we've yeah. talked about it here on the program before, but this is, as you say, the first time North Korea is actually talking about what happened to this soldier. And basically their deal is that they are saying that uh, Travis King wanted to get out of the United States, sort of disaffiliate with the United States because of racism, that he wanted to uh, seek refuge, is the phrase they used, uh, in North Korea or in a different country. Now, I think most people uh, in, in the Western world and certainly in Asia would not immediately think of North Korea as the first place to seek refuge. But uh, this is what they're putting out. And of course, uh, the United States and every analyst I'm sure out there is saying, look, you can't take this as gospel just because the North Korean government is saying that this is what he said. I mean, nobody's been in serious contact with with this soldier since uh, he ran across the border. Um, so it's interesting, though, that they're sort of coming out and trying to spin it this way. And what's really going on may be a totally different matter. Oh, goodness me. I, I think North Korea is a parallel universe. The place fascinates me. But, you know, the White House press secretary, is it Karine Jean-Pierre, said we'd caution everyone to consider the source. Well, absolutely. Right. I mean, this is he's probably been interrogated. I, you know, I, I don't feel like North Korea is the, the first place you would go for a soft landing. Um, <laughs> no. I understand you know, the, the guy had been in some uh, disciplinary trouble. He was on his way back to the United States uh, to face some disciplinary action and so on. He also had a number of personal things going in his life, a personal tragedy involving a death in the family. But he got out of the airport where he'd been dropped off to go back to the U.S., uh, got with a tour group, got to the DMZ, ran across, and has not been seen since. So, you know, who really knows what exactly is happening to him, what he is saying and doing and thinking. Wow. Uh, again, the North Korean authorities would not be my first most reliable source for that specific information. Oh, and Celeste, if you're going to... Uh, look to a country to seek refuge. I don't know whether North Korea would be my first choice. Yeah, I, I would definitely think about something else. I, I would probably put that a little further down on the roster. All right. So where are we with that as of this point in time? Have we heard from King recently? No, it's uh, he hasn't. There hasn't been major contact. Of course, the United States doesn't have formal diplomatic relations with North Korea. I believe that uh, Sweden has actually acted as an intermediary, right. but there's not sort of the usual communication channels. 
Um, and obviously the relationship is not great. You know, there's been plenty of hostility and posturing and so on. But, um, you know, look, there's there's no denying that the United States has issues with race. And I, I don't think that that just blowing that off as an impossibility uh, is is necessarily the the best way to go with that. But again, I mean, we don't know what's happening with this guy. We don't know if he's okay. We don't know if he's okay. No. He was okay before he went across the border, even. Yeah, well, that's just absolutely fascinating. It really is. Now, uh, this story uh, interests me because uh, it worries me too. A, a, a newspaper in Kansas has regained some items that were seized in what have been seen as pretty controversial police raids. Yeah, this is a really shocking story mm. that a lot of people in the media uh, have been paying attention to, but also people who are in general interested in First Amendment rights, are interested in the, the extent of the powers of law enforcement. But basically, this is a very small local newspaper in the state of Kansas that got raided by the police for a story that they were working on or had been working on. Basically, uh, long story short, there was a restaurant owner that they were um investigating and she accused the newspaper of some malfeasance like trying to get you know when digging for information for her so the police came in took away um you know computer equipment and so on um as a you know immediately after this raid the elderly 98 year old mother of the wow. publisher yeah. died um, mm. You know, supposedly from shock or stress, according to her son. But uh, this has been shocking. The police, I mean, can you imagine your newspaper office or, you know, your local paper office or your radio station for that matter? The police just barge in and take reporting materials. I mean, that's that's wild. That's not how it's supposed to work. We have protections in this country for that. Yeah. But in any event, it looks like uh, they are going to be able to get back their stuff. But people still want to know. How did this happen? And, you know, was it in any way related by the fact that the police chief had also been investigated by the same small newspaper? Yeah, that's deeply troubling, really, isn't it? It really is. And I've written a lot about uh, First Amendment issues and done a lot of media criticism, in addition to working at uh, newspapers, large and small, that have come under fire or threats or, you know, all sorts of uh, pressures and stuff from people that we've investigated. And it really is terrifying to think that uh, if the police didn't like something you wrote or somebody else wanted to make an allegation against you, um, this is not something that you would have a discussion about, that somebody would be, uh, you know, literally or figuratively breaking down your door and taking your notes. It's, mm. you know, we have, we have a constitutional guarantee of uh, freedom of the press in this country. And that does not seem to uh, to dovetail with that at all. Well, you know, as you and I both know, if you don't have that uh, freedom of the press uh, in, you know, societies like ours, uh, you're really de heading down a very slippery path. Absolutely. Absolutely. And yeah. uh, so I felt like this is something that people should be talking about all over the world. It's not really just the case of one small newspaper in one state in one country. It's really a chance to think about uh, how important it is that that people are able to pursue reporting uh, freely and without the fear of people breaking down their door and taking their materials oh, and, yeah. and trying yeah. to because there's you know even even if even if there was there was no 
ultimate criminal action taken or nobody was charged with anything, it still has an intimidation factor there that it's very hard to deny. And frankly, I think it's scary. Yeah, so do I. I think it's very scary indeed. Look, you might think this is along the same lines, but I tell you, we have these problems that we're about to describe here, very similar in fact, Uh, the police cracking down on what they're calling rolling parties to improve the quality of life in neighbourhoods around uh, the place, yeah? Yeah, Boston police have had this brand new operation called Operation Quiet Streets. This is something that they've just started doing. There are these um, huge roving parties. It's not just like a bunch of kids standing around drinking beers in a parking lot. This is people with like, uh, you know, all-terrain vehicles, guns, uh, you know, basically open-air drug trade, people taking drugs and drinking, and it's really out of control. And so they have to do this whole special operation just to sort of make people feel safe and, and, you know, be able to live peacefully in their own homes. Yeah. We have uh, a fairly serious problem in a couple of states in Australia with with youth crime. And here, the drag racing, it's called burnouts, where they get in a hotted up car and go round and round and round in a car park doing burnouts. And uh, people complain about that. And just during the World Cup here, only last night, uh, some young people broke through a barricade and started chucking flares around the place. Now, I, I know it was the World Cup and a specific event, but, uh, gee, it's uh, eerily similar. Uh, we're facing the same sort of thing. Yeah, it's really, and, you know, you might even think to yourself, like, hey, you know, people want to party, no big deal, whatever, but people could get seriously injured Uh, You know, it's really and then even when the police try to break it up or when people around there try to break it up, it's just so many people. The thing has just sort of metastasized to the point where uh, you have to have uniformed police in a coordinated operation to try to calm the thing down. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm reading here uh, this information you sent me. And uh, as I say, it's quite spooky how similar it is. Is it the case, uh, and this is what's happening here, the general feeling amongst the rest of us is uh, that the youth crime in particular, and, you know, we're talking about here uh, people as young as, you know, 12, 13, 14, stealing cars, you know, robbing houses uh, in one particular state. It's uh, in Queensland. It's, uh, you know, some people say it's out of hand. Now, is it this whole... I suppose, scenario of young people thinking they're immune and if they are arrested, they'll get put up before a magistrate and they'll get a slap on the wrist and get let out. Do you have the same sort of thing, same sort of concept? Yeah, we we certainly do have different, uh, you know, we have differentiations in our our, uh, criminal justice system for people who are under 18 and people who are 18 and older. But this is something that's really sort of taken on a life of its own. I mean, some of the people who are coming here to do this are not from Boston and they're not even from Massachusetts. So right. it's really become sort of a magnet thing where people are coming down here and and acting crazy, not just on foot, but with um, bikes and scooters and ATVs. And they also have some of these cars that they're using equipped with incredibly loud speakers, yeah. like sort of earth shaking type yeah. speakers. Yeah. And yeah. And it, it's really gone past the point where, uh, you know, you can turn turn your back on it, I guess, and say, oh, it's just kids having fun. It's It's gotten way, way bigger than that. Yes. And on the other side of that, um, is there the thought that the police don't have enough power to stop this or are they able to and, and get a result? 
Yeah, I mean, I think that they've had to coordinate the effort because in the past, they've had groups of people go in and try to break up these parties. But again, there's so many people that if you don't send in enough law enforcement or enough officials to try to uh, disperse these people, it could get out of hand. They could be at risk themselves because the people do not want the party to be over. No, And yeah. so so they really have had to bring in sort of more of a, frankly, a show of force, which sounds wild for um, you know, just people drinking or, or listening to music, but it's sort of gotten worse than that. And yeah. I mean, we do have laws here against uh, what's called open container, which is drinking in a public place that's not licensed for, for the service of alcohol yeah, and sure. so on. Yeah. So, so, you know, there, there are rules that they can enforce against people. But again, it's just the sheer numbers are what making it, uh, what's making it really shocking and really hard to break up. Yeah. All right. Now, all of that's been pretty negative. We need positive now. So here's a beauty. Massachusetts <laughs> is still the best state to live in. There you go. <laughs> yeah, well, apparently, except for the, the rolling parties. <laughs> that if, if exactly. you lay that aside, supposedly uh, the Commonwealth of Massachusetts is a, a good place to live for a number of reasons. Yeah, New Jersey second, New York fourth. Um, who was third? Uh, That's a good question. I'd have to uh, I'd have to look that up, but it's sort of uh, the whole idea is let's see. Actually, oh, actually, it was New Hampshire. Excuse New me, Hampshire, New Hampshire, yeah, which yeah. is the neighbor of Massachusetts. Um, can't believe New Jersey's second, but they have a a series of. <laughs> <laughs> what can I say? I'm a New Yorker. I yeah, had, there you go. Ding yeah. Jersey. I'm sure people in Australia care deeply about the New York New Jersey rivalry, but um, yeah, for for the criteria in this in this uh, survey, it was. Massachusetts did badly on affordability. It's not a cheap place to live, and no. I can I can confirm this for sure. But it did get good marks for the economy, for the quality of life, for education, yeah. for healthcare, and that's where some of the other states did did not do as well. Well, we have a big argument here uh, ongoing between Sydney and Melbourne. I think it's called the most livable city index, and we sort of swap it around. I think Melbourne's got the uh, the top spot at the moment. We swap them around. So, I mean, it's all good fun. Christopher the Mill, isn't it? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Celeste, lovely to talk to you. Thanks for your time again. Always a pleasure. That's uh, Celeste Katz-Marston. Now, uh, folks, we get a little uh, an old tip.